0: I'm Akiva Fox, and this is Clear Shakespeare, the read-along Shakespeare podcast. (music) Greetings from sunny Durham, North Carolina. So now grab your copy of Hamlet, open it to Act 1, Scene 2, and we'll start. So you may remember when we last left the play... The uh, soldiers and Horatio had gone off to tell young Hamlet what they had learned about the ghost. And this is a sort of scene change that happens all the time in Shakespeare. First of all, there'll be some little scene at the beginning of the play, mostly exposition, as is always the case, and then the main body of the play will come on, the main characters, the main situation. Now, one theory about this is that people were still filing into the theater at this time, so you were kind of trying to dump some important information, but no important characters. I think it's also important to kind of give the audience a little time to warm up to the style of language and to get to know the world of the play a little bit. So what happens at the beginning of Act 1, Scene 2 of Hamlet is basically every other character in the play enters. There's a few pirates being held back, but basically it's all the main characters that we haven't seen already. It's the full court, king, queen, all the folks around them. And it starts out with a huge speech by Claudius, the king of Denmark. He starts, "'Though yet of Hamlet our dear brother's death, the memory be green, and that it us befitted to bear our hearts in grief, and our whole kingdom to be contracted in one brow of woe, yet so far hath discretion fought with nature, that we with wisest sorrow think on him, together with remembrance of ourselves.'" So let's go back to the beginning of that. Though here is even though, even though our dear brother Hamlet's death is still green. That's a beautiful word choice. Green in the sense of fresh or unfaded like a plant that's just come. So his dear brother Hamlet's memory is still fresh in his mind. And notice he uses the word our dear brother's death. That's what we sometimes call the royal we. It's a way that kings and queens talk to describe the whole country bound up in them, in their person. But look, he says, it us befitted to bear our hearts in grief. He only has one heart after all. It's appropriate for all of us in the kingdom to hold our hearts in grief and our whole kingdom to be contracted in one brow of woe. The whole kingdom is summed up in one expression of woe. Contracted means made very small so that it can fit in a single brow, maybe his brow. So even though his memory is still fresh, and even though we should still be grieving and everyone being sad, Yet, look how he turns the phrase, yet, so far hath discretion fought with nature. Our good sense, our prudence is what the discretion part means. We should seem upset so f- soon after his death, but it's fighting with nature, our true nature, that we want to be happy. And he says that we with wisest sorrow think on him. It's a little bit of an oxymoron that sorrow can be wise. Yes, we're thinking about him, but together with remembrance of ourselves. Yes, we're thinking about him, but we're also paying attention to ourselves. And why are they so happy? He goes on. Therefore, our sometime sister, now our queen, the imperial jointress to this warlike state, have we as twere, with a defeated joy, with an auspicious and a dropping eye, with mirth in funeral and with dirge in marriage, in equal scale weighing delight and dull, taken to wife. And that's a very long sentence with a lot of little poetic comparisons in it, but let's unpack it there. So why are we remembering ourselves? Because our sometime sister, our sometime here means former sister, now our queen, the imperial jointress. A jointress is literally a co-owner. When a husband dies, his wife can take on the property that they owned. So she's a widow who inherits her late husband's property. And in this case, it's imperial. It's the empire that she has inherited. So we took her with a defeated joy. Now look at these opposites that are paired with each other. A joy, but it's defeated. So we're happy, but we're also sad at the same time. With an auspicious, a happy or cheerful, sort of a good omen, and a dropping eye. So one eye is happy, and one eye is dropping down in sadness. You can't actually do that with two eyes unless you're a chameleon. And he says, with mirth in funeral. So happiness, mirth, joking, in funeral, at the time of sadness and death. And with dirge, a song of mourning, in marriage. So you have happy and sad things squashed together. In equal scale, weighing delight and dole. And scale uh, means amount. It's almost like the scales balance out. In balancing scales, weighing delight, happiness, and dole, grief or sorrow. You have both of them at the same time of equal amounts. And the sentence finally ends there. So it starts with, have we, as Esther with a defeated joy and goes through all of those opposites, taken to wife, married. And he goes on, Nor have we herein barred your better wisdoms, which have freely gone with this affair along. Herein means in this matter, this matter of marrying so soon after old Hamlet's funeral, her old husband. Nor have we, we haven't barred, excluded you from. You know, you have been totally consulted in this decision to get married. Your better wisdoms. He's talking to the core, He's talking to everyone who's listening here, which have freely gone with this affair along. We really appreciate that you've let this go forward. He ends it by saying, For all our thanks. He's not just talking to some random dudes here. This isn't like the first scene where it's some people who know each other talking. He is giving a political speech to his court, to the people who are guaranteeing that he will stay king. This is a very shaky time in Denmark right now, and it's especially shaky for him. You should know that at this time, in Shakespeare's time, but also for quite some time, marrying your brother's widow was thought of as incest. Uh, which is to say, don't do it. But he's managed to swing it so he can marry her and take the throne. After all, who was next in line when the old king died? It was young Hamlet. But Claudius has managed, along with the help of all these people in court, the various lords he's talking to, to get and keep the throne. And I think Claudius is usually cast with someone who looks evil, or he has an evil beard that he has to grow for the part, because we know he's the villain because we've all heard of Hamlet before. But in this play, what is he when he first is introduced to us? He's an incredibly skillful politician. He's a Bill Clinton, essentially. And so when you cast someone who looks evil from the beginning, you think of him as kind of a dope or as the bad guy. But actually, look what he's doing here. He's managed to legitimize his reign in a few lines. That's why he says, for all our thanks, because he needs these people. And he's happy to thank them. And now he goes on to something we've heard before, which is another way to solidify his rule with strength. He says, now follows that, you know, young Fortinbras, holding a weak supposal of our worth, or thinking by our late dear brother's death our state to be disjoint and out of frame, co with this dream of his advantage, he hath not failed to pester us with message importing the surrender of those lands lost by his father with all bands of law to our most valiant brother. Yeah, we've heard this story before from Horatio, right? Now follows that, you know. That here means what you know, the thing you already know. So he he holds a weak supposal of our worth. Supposal is like an opinion. Fortinbras has an opinion that they are weak. Or he thinks by our late dear brother's death. Yes, he's the late King Hamlet, but what late here means is recent. Our dear brother's recent death. He thinks our state to be disjoint. Um, You're going to hear this word used very shortly, disjoint or out of joint, um, it means dislocated, like bones in the body or like pieces of wood that were formerly joined together. Out of frame is the same sort of thing, kind of like out of order. It's the idea of a state that is pulled apart in some way, in this case by the tragedy of old King Hamlet's death. co uh, it's spelled colleged, but it's pronounced co it means in league or joined together. He's combining that opinion, that they're out of joint, and he's combining that with this dream of his advantage. Dream is a wonderful way to put it. He has this dream, this fantasy that he has an advantage over us, uh, and because of those things he hath not failed, in other words, he hasn't stopped to pester us with message and listen to the sound of that, pester us with message. It just has that annoying little kid sound to it. He's sending us messages to pester us, and what do these messages say? importing uh, requesting or sort of suggesting the surrender of those lands lost by his father with all bands of law bands in this case are the sort of bonds of the agreement those dudes signed before they fought on the ice remember that old hamlet and old king fortinbras fought they agreed to this agreement the bonds of the law and fortinbras lost so they got those lands so he's he's asking for the surrender of those lands lost to our most valiant brother old king hamlet in other words And he ends with this great burn, this sort of little snippet of language at the end of this line. So much for him. In other words, that's what he's doing, but also the hell with that guy. Now for ourself and for this time of meeting, thus much the business is. Now as for us, we've already heard about him, but as for us, in other words, me, the king, and for this time of meeting, for what we're talking about right now, thus much the business is. Here is the business we're here to talk about. We have here writ to Norway, uncle of young Fortinbras, who, impotent and bedrid, scarcely hears of this his nephew's purpose, to suppress his further gait herein, in that the levies, the lists, and full proportions are all made out of his subject. We have here writ, he says, in this letter here. So it's essentially implying a prop. We've written to Norway, and as we remember, Norway is the king of Norway, the uncle of young Fortinbras. Fortinbras was too young when his father died to take over, so his uncle took over, just like in Denmark for that matter. Norway is the one who's impotent and bedrid. Impotent doesn't mean what you think it means, it means just powerless. He's very sick, bedrid, in bed. He scarcely hears of this, his nephew's purpose. He hasn't even heard about what young Fortinbras' purpose, intention is. That's just a parenthetical. You could almost put a parenthesis around who impotent and Bedrid scarcely hears of this, his nephew's purpose. So we have written to suppress his further gate herein. We've written to stop his further gate, his further steps, literally, his further proceeding in this matter In that the levies, the men who are literally levied or conscripted from the the people who are sharked up, remember from the last scene, the lists, those troops from that last scene too, and full proportions, the sort of complete supplies for this adventure are all made out of his subject. They're all drawn from what belongs to Norway. So in other words, young Fortinbras is stealing things from him. And he goes on, and we here dispatch you, good Cornelius, and you, Voltamond, for bearers of this greeting to old Norway, giving to you no further personal power to business with the king more than the scope of these dilated articles allow so he's going to send two messengers we dispatch we send off these two guys Cornelius and Voltamond for bearers in other words as carriers of this greeting not just hello this message to old norway the king giving to you no further no more no greater personal power to business with the king in other words you can't just decide to do something more than the scope of these dilated articles allow you can do nothing more than what is in these dilated extensive detailed you know like When they dilate your pupils, they open them as wide as they can go. So he's put all the possibilities into this letter, these dilated articles, these words, these conditions of the letter. He goes on, farewell and let your haste commend your duty. In other words, let your speed demonstrate how much you love me, how much you show your duty to me. And Cornelius and Vultimant say, in that and all things will we show our duty. In that, in other words, in our haste, but in everything we do, we'll show our duty. So they're echoing him, which is always a good idea to do to the king. And Claudius responds, we doubt it. Nothing. Heartily farewell. You know, we don't doubt it at all. So all that official business is taken care of. And now they go on to the next piece of business, which is a much more personal piece of business. And now Laertes, what's the news with you? You told us of some suit. What is it, Laertes? So Laertes comes up. We don't know who Laertes is yet. You told us of some suit. A suit is literally like a formal request. It's not like you told us about some beautifully tailored suit. He has something to ask him. What is it, Laertes? What is it? And then he goes on a little bit of a tangent. You cannot speak of reason to the Dane and lose your voice. Of reason here means like reasonably. You can't have a reasonable request for the Dane, the king of Denmark, and lose your voice. In other words, not have your request granted. What wouldst thou beg, Laertes, that shall not be my offer, not thy asking? Beg isn't like beg on your knees. It's it's just request. What would you have? What would you want? That shall not be my offer, not thy asking. That I won't offer you before you even ask it. The head is not more native to the heart, the hand more instrumental to the mouth than is the throne of Denmark to thy father. Native is like the native of a land. The head isn't more sort of naturally connected to the heart. The hand isn't a more useful instrument to the mouth. So in other words, the head and the heart and the hand and the mouth aren't more connected than the throne of Denmark. In other words, the king of Denmark is connected to thy father, your father. And look, he's using this thou and thy way of speaking. As we know, that's an informal way to speak. So he's being very familiar with him. He's obviously a close person to the king. What wouldst thou have, Laertes? In other words, what do you want? And Laertes responds, my dread lord, your leave and favor to return to France. So he's asking him, what what do you want to have? And he says, my dread lord. Uh, Dread here means not that you're afraid of, but that you hold in awe that you really respect. Your leave and favor. Um, leave is sort of like permission here. Favor is sort of more like support to return to France. He wants to go back to France. Okay, this is someone who came from France. And he goes on. From whence though willingly I came to Denmark to show my duty in your coronation, yet now I must confess that duty done. My thoughts and wishes bend again towards France and bow them to your gracious leave and pardon. So now we see why he was in Denmark. He came just for the coronation. He may have come for the funeral of old Hamlet as well. We don't know. So he came to show his duty in appearing for the coronation, but now that that duty is done, his thoughts are all about going back towards France. Ben this beautiful way of saying it, that it's sort of bending back towards France. And I bow them. In other words, my thoughts and wishes are all bowed or given over to your leave, your permission and pardon. He was asking for his leave and favor before, and now he's asking for his leave and pardon. In other words, pardon me for wanting to go back so soon, but it's important to me. And Claudius picks up on that word leave too, permission, in other words. Have you your father's leave? What says Polonius? Oh, he has a father. Now we know because we've heard that his father is really instrumental to the throne of Denmark. Now we're going to meet him. And Polonius, Laertes' father, says, He hath, my lord, wrung for me my slow leave by laborsome petition. And at last upon his will I sealed my hard consent. So we've been using this word leave all the time. Do you have your father's permission? Yes, he's wrung for me my slow leave. It's a wonderful phrase to use. Rung like wringing out a cloth, he's pressed or pulled him into giving him permission. And why is his leave slow? Because it, it's slow to be given by laborsome petition. In other words, hard working. He was working really hard for the permission. Petition here is begging or asking. And at last, upon his will, because of his desire, I sealed my hard consent. I bestowed my reluctant permission, in other words. And look at all those sort of legalistic language he's using here. His will, sealed. It's like the language of a contract. A petition, same thing. You can tell that this is a guy who spends a lot of time on the law. And he says, I do beseech you, give him leave to go. So we hear that word leave come one more time. I beg of you, I beseech you, give him permission to go. And that's enough for the king. He says, take thy fair hour, Laertes. Take, in other words, your this sort of favorable opportunity to go. Time be thine, and thy best graces spend it at thy will. He's saying, may time be yours. And thy best graces, may your best qualities ensure that you spend your time at thy will means as you desire. Great. So Claudius has now cleaned up two pieces of business. There's only one piece of business left. And that business is going to introduce us to the title character of the play. But now, my cousin Hamlet and my son... Now, obviously, Hamlet isn't his literal cousin. Cousin is a term that was used at this time to refer to basically any close relative, outside of, you know, parents and children. And he also goes on to call him my son. Huge mistake, by the way. You're not my real dad. And Hamlet has what is called an aside. Aside usually means either to himself or often just sort of to the audience. He turns to us and lets us know what he's thinking. It's something that no one else in the scene can hear. And Hamlet mutters a little more than kin and less than kind. In other words, yeah, you're just a little more than related to me, but you're less than kind. And kind has many different meanings. It can mean a sort of close natural relationship. It can mean a good or like you're a kind person. It can mean the same kind of animal, basically. So look at the parallelism of that sentence. A little more than kin. Yes, you're a little more than kin, but you're less than kind. So see the parallel of more and less and kin and kind. They probably would have been pronounced much closer to each other than they are now in the original pronunciation of these things. And of course, Claudius doesn't hear that. So he goes on. But now my cousin Hamlet and my son, how is it that the clouds still hang on you? And Hamlet finally responds to Claudius because remember, Claudius couldn't hear his first little dig. Not so, my lord. I am too much in the sun. He says, no, the clouds aren't hanging on me. I'm actually too much in the sun. And sun here is a nice kind of like sun, S-O-N-S-U-N pun. Hamlet's going to be doing a lot of punning on words like this. So he says, not only don't clouds hang on me and I'm in the sun, but also don't call me sun, you're not my dad. And we finally hear from Gertrude, who has been essentially a prop for the first part of this scene. She says, good Hamlet, cast thy knighted color off and let thine eye look like a friend on Denmark. Cast thy knighted color off. Knighted is black as night. Cast off this black color you've been wearing, or maybe just this black mood you've been wearing. And let thine eye look like a friend on Denmark. It's an extremely weird expression. But in other words, you should look better on him. You should look at him like a friend. Denmark, again, is the king of Denmark. And she goes on. Do not forever with thy veiled lids seek for thy noble father in the dust. Veiled means downcast, looking down. You know, you're always looking down at the ground. It's as though you're looking for your dead father in the dust of the earth. And then she kind of lays down the law. Thou no, tis common, all that lives must die, passing through nature to eternity. One way to look at common is, yeah, it happens all the time. Another way is what they call a commonplace saying. Everyone says, all that lives must die, passing through nature to eternity. It's a saying. All that lives, everything that lives has to die, passing through nature, passing through its natural life to eternity, to its eternal life, the afterlife, in other words. And Hamlet says, I'm madam, it is common. Common here can have multiple meanings because he's always snarking at everyone. It can mean, yeah, it's a commonplace saying, or yeah, it happens all the time. Or yeah, that's a very common, low-class way to talk. But his mom takes that first way. and She says, if it be, if it is common, why seems it so particular with thee? Why is it so personal for you? Why is it so special for you? Particular, it's as though he's the only one who's ever experienced death. And he picks up on the verb she uses. She says, why seems it so particular? And Hamlet says, seems, madam? Nay, it is. I know not seems. Remember in that last scene when we were talking about that theme that's going to run throughout the play? Things going on on the outside and things going on underneath? Here's another part of that. This kind of being and seeming idea. Yeah, it seems on the outside, but it is underneath. This is a world full of people who seem. It's a very political world. And Hamlet says, nay, it is. My grief is. I know not seems. I'm not a kind of seeming person. I'm not all about exteriors. And he continues on that same theme. "'Tis not alone my inky cloak, good mother, nor customary suits of solemn black, nor windy suspiration forced breath, no, nor the fruitful river in the eye, nor the dejected haviour of the visage, together with all forms, moods, shapes of grief that can denote me truly. He says, "'It's not just my inky, my black-colored cloak, my garment.' Nor customary suits. Customary is a little denigrating. It's like, well, it's just the custom to wear black when someone dies. Nor windy suspiration. Suspiration is sighing or breathing, the kind of things you do when you feel sad. Windy is a kind of undercutting of that. It's like, oh, it's just all wind to you. Nor the fruitful river in the eye. Fruitful in the sense of free-flowing or productive. It's pouring out water from the eye when you're crying nor the dejected, the downcast behavior behavior of the visage of the face. Remember that part about the veil of lids seeking for your father in the dust? It's not just that I'm looking down. Together with all forms, along with all the forms, moods. Moods here is like modes of grief, shapes of grief that can denote me truly. So none of these things can portray me, can depict how I really feel inside. He goes on, these indeed seem for they are actions that a man might play. Yeah, all these trappings, these outside things, they seem, their actions a man might play, a man might act out. We're going to see acting metaphors in this play all over the place. I mean, obviously, it's a play in the theater, but he talks about it a lot, that you can act one way and be another way. So these are all the, the seeming decorations. But he goes on, But I have that within which passeth show. These, but the trappings and the suits of woe. I have that thing inside that surpasses just show, just acting. These, these things, this stuff, they're the trappings, the ornaments or embellishments, the and the suits of woe, the clothes that demonstrate sadness. So this whole speech is a way for him to take on his mother and everyone else in the court, including the king, who behaved so full of grief when the old king died and then immediately turned to marriage. He's the only true person. He's the only one who is, as opposed to just seeming. But remember, this is still a public interaction. People are watching this. So Claudius has to demonstrate strength. He has to put an end to this. He says, "'Tis sweet and commendable in your nature, Hamlet, to give these mourning duties to your father." It's commendable. It's a good thing to show the duty of mourning your father. But you must know, your father lost a father. That father lost, lost his, and the survivor bound in filial obligation for some term to do obsequious sorrow." Your father also lost his father. That father lost. In other words, your grandfather, who was lost, lost his father. And the survivor, the child, bound in filial obligation for some term to do obsequious sorrow. Bound means was required. In filial obligation means the obligation of a child to a parent for some term, for some period of time, to do obsequious sorrow, to behave in dutiful ways, to do the duty of mourning your father. But then he goes on. He turns it on the word but. But to persevere in obstinate condolment is a course of impious stubbornness. To persevere, to persist in obstinate condolment, in stubborn grief or mourning, is a course of impious stubbornness. And impious here is irreligious. And Hamlet's actually a pretty religious person. This is a real insult to him. He goes on, tis unmanly grief. Unmanly is never a great thing to call a young man. It shows a will most incorrect to heaven, a heart unfortified, a mind impatient, an understanding simple and unschooled. Incorrect here doesn't just mean wrong, but it means contrary or sort of disobedient to heaven. A heart unfortified. Unfortified is like a castle that can't defend itself. So it's a heart that's just constantly feeling everything it's feeling. A mind impatient, a mind that can't deal with its own sorrow. Simple and unschooled. Unschooled is literally uneducated. You don't understand properly. And Hamlet's a really educated guy, so this is an even bigger insult for him. For what we know must be, and is as common as any of the most vulgar thing to sense, why should we, in our peevish opposition, take it to heart? For here is almost like because, because of that thing that we know has to be, and for the thing that is as common as any the most, as in other words, the most vulgar, it's not rude, it's more like familiar, it's like everybody has it, it's the most familiar thing to the human senses, dying in other words. So we know all these things to be true, everyone experiences it, based on that, why should we in our peevish opposition, why should we in our stubborn opposition, take it to heart? Since we know all those things, why are we still taking this to heart? And then he really gets worked up. Fie, tis a fault to heaven, a fault against the dead, a fault to nature, to reason most absurd, whose common theme is death of fathers, and who still hath cried from the first course till he that died today, this must be so. Fie is another one of those outrage words that sounds like what it is. It's like yuck, or an expression of sort of like disgust or shame. It's a fault, it's a sin or a crime against heaven, against the dead, against nature. In other words, against natural law. And then put that next phrase in parentheses to reason most absurd. It's a fault to all these things, and it's most absurd to reason. In other words, any rational person would find that crazy. And then go back to where it says a fault to nature, and then continue whose common theme is death of fathers. Nature's sort of general topic is death of fathers. Everyone's father dies. And who still hath cried. In other words, nature is always declared. From the first course, the first corpse, the first person that died, till he that died today, all the way to the person who died this very day, this must be so. Everyone must die. We pray you, throw to earth this unprevailing woe and think of us as of a father. We pray you, we beg you, throw to earth this unprevailing woe. Unprevailing means ineffective or unsuccessful. It's never going to win. And he asks him in this beautiful image to take it and throw it down on the ground, this woe, this sadness, and think of us as of, as you would of a father, which just kills Hamlet. He goes on, for let the world take note. You are the most immediate to our throne and with no less nobility of love than that which dearest father bears his son, do I impart toward you. Let the world take note. Let the world have notice. Remember, he's still in front of the court right now. He's declaring it. You are the most immediate to our throne. Literally, you will succeed me when I die. And with no less nobility. Nobility here is value or worth, not just being a nobleman. So no less worth of love than that which an actual father offers to his son. Do I impart toward you? Do I grant or bestow on you? So it's a very public declaration that he is going to be his father now. It's really important for Claudius to look like he has the heir to the throne in his pocket. And then he goes on to the business at hand. For your intent in going back to school in Wittenberg, it is most retrograde to our desire. Your intent in going means your intent to go back to school in Wittenberg. Wittenberg was this very, very famous German university. It's especially known for things like philosophy and theology, which are going to be big themes here. So we know Hamlet is a student out of school. It is most retrograde. It is most contrary to our desire, to what we want. And we beseech you, bend you to remain here in the cheer and comfort of our eye, our chiefest courtier. Cousin and our son, we beseech you. This is a very strong verb. We beg you. We bend you as if we could bend you literally toward us to remain here in the cheer and comfort of our eye. Remember earlier on where they were talking about let your eye look like a friend on Denmark? It's that eye image again. And it's going to be important later because Claudius is going to do a lot of watching. So that eye is actually really important. He wants to keep an eye on Hamlet. Our chiefest, our number one courtier person in our court, cousin and our son, Now, there's some debate over what cousin is used as here. So he could be saying, our chiefest courtier, cousin, and our son. In other words, he's talking to him as cousin. Or it can be, you're our most important courtier, you're our most important relative, and you're our son. And Gertrude really piles on. Hers is really the most important opinion, because she's the last relative he has left. Let not thy mother lose her prayers, Hamlet. Don't let your mother not get what she prays for. I pray thee, stay with us. Go not to Wittenberg. So she turns it from prayers, the kind of prayers you would say to God, to I pray, I ask you, I beg you to stay with us. Go not to Wittenberg. Don't go back to university. And he finally says, I shall in all my best obey you, madam. In all my best is as best I can, sort of to the best of my ability. And he says, you, madam. He doesn't say I'm going to obey Claudius. He says, I'll obey you. Obey is also a strange word choice. It's the kind of thing you would do to a king or queen, not necessarily just to your parents. And now Claudius has gotten exactly what he wanted. He goes on, Why, tis a loving and a fair reply. Fair here means good or beautiful, not just, that's fair. And he says, Be as ourself in Denmark. In other words, behave just like the king. You can have anything you want. Madam, come, this gentle and unforced accord of Hamlet sits smiling to my heart. He says to the queen, come along, this gentle, in other words, noble. It can also mean sort of peaceful or gentle in our modern sense, but it really means noble and unforced. He was not forced to do it, even though he clearly was accord, agreement or consent of Hamlet not to go back to Wittenberg sits smiling to my heart. It's a very weird image, but it literally means, you know, pleases my heart, but sits smiling to is a weird way to say it. It's almost like the accord is sitting next to his heart, smiling at it. And he continues. In grace whereof, no and health that Denmark drinks today, but the great cannon to the clouds shall tell, and the king's rouse the heaven shall brew it again, respeaking speaking earthly thunder. So this is as much to the whole court as it is to anyone he's talking to right now. In grace whereof, in other words, in gratitude for this. No jocund health that Denmark drinks today. Not a single joyful toast that the king of Denmark drinks today. There won't be one toast he drinks where the cannons won't fire up into the clouds. Tell here means literally to count out or recount. So every time he drinks, the cannon's going to tell off one shot into the heavens. And the king's rouse, the king's drinking or toasting. It's the same word as corouse that we have. The heavens shall brood again. The heavens, the sky, will brood, echo back Respeaking earthly thunder. In other words, speaking back or repeating the thunder that came from the earth in the form of the canon. And he says, come away. And when the king says, come away, everyone comes away. And you have a cool stage effect here, which is that you have a full stage suddenly become a stage that's empty except for one person. A lot of Shakespeare's soliloquies work like this. There's a big scene happening on stage. There's a lot of noise. And then the doors all close and you're left with just one person talking to you. And this is Hamlet's first soliloquy. And these are very famous soliloquies, obviously, where he talks to himself and or the crowd in front of him. But remember that those people are there. He's not just talking to himself. There's also people listening to him in the audience. He's very conscious of the audience being there. Obviously, there aren't any people in the throne room that he's in, but there are people in the audience as he is on stage. And that really matters when you look at soliloquies. And this is Hamlet's suicide soliloquy. You may think that's actually a later one in the play, that's not true. We'll get to that later. He says, Oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt, thaw, and resolve itself into a dew. You can hear Hamlet's state of mind even just from the sounds, all these long syllables. Oh, too, too solid, thaw, dew. These long sort of moaning words. Now, there's a little bit of a debate over this word solid. Some other editions, some other texts have it as sullied or sallied, words that mean very different things. But there's something about solid that actually works really well with the image he's talking about. He wishes that his flesh, which is too solid, would melt, thaw, thaw meaning dissolve, and resolve itself, sort of transform, or sort of a further meaning of dissolve, into a dew. He wishes that his solid flesh could just become dew that would evaporate. He wants to not exist anymore. And when he says, oh, that, he says, I wish that this would happen. He goes on, or that the Everlasting had not fixed his canon against self-slaughter. Oh, God. Oh, God. Or I wish that the Everlasting, in other words, God, had not fixed his canon, had not set his law against self-slaughter. Suicide, like murder, is a mortal sin. If you're a religious person, especially a Catholic, as Hamlet apparently is, you believe that means you can go to hell, so he refuses to commit suicide because it means he would go to hell. But he immediately says, oh God, God. He calls on God, after talking about God's law, almost as though I wish that wasn't the case. How weary, stale, flat, and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. Those are wonderful, simple words. Weary, stale, flat, unprofitable. The uses of this world mean sort of the usual activities of this world. Everything in it just seems flat and gross to him. He goes on, fie on it. Ah, fie. We've heard that word just very recently. It's that kind of yuck word. Awful, shameful. And what is this awful, shameful thing? It's the thing he just talked about, the world he describes it as, as we'll see, "'Tis an unweeded garden that grows to seed. Things rank and gross in nature possess it merely. It's like a garden where the weeds have overgrown it." Growing to seed, if you've ever done any gardening, means something like falls apart or rots. You know, after plants flower, they grow to seed as they die. So when plants are dying, they send up seed pods so that they can live again next year. But growing to seed means there's no flowers or fruit in it anymore. Things rank and gross in nature. Rank is like overabundant or sort of overgrown with luxury. It's that same garden image again. Gross means excessively large, not disgusting. Possess it merely. Merely isn't just as we use it right now. It means completely or totally. So it's a garden where it's completely overwhelmed with weeds. The world is. And then he goes back to his personal situation. That it should come to this. But two months dead. Nay, not so much. Not two. But is only, so it's only been two months since the death, we presume, of his father, the king. Wait, it's not even that much. It's not even two. So excellent a king that was to this Hyperion to a satyr. Such a great king that was to this means compared to this one. In other words, compared to Claudius, Hyperion to a satyr. Hyperion was one of the titans. He was essentially the father of the moon gods in Greek mythology. So he's like the greatest of the gods compared to a satyr. These are sort of these, like, goat men that are obsessed with drinking and sex. So his father was Hyperion to Claudius' satyr. And now that he's talking about how great his father was, he goes on even further. So loving to my mother that he might not beteem the winds of heaven visit her face too roughly. Beteam means permit. He wouldn't even allow the wind to touch her face too roughly. But that's too much to him. After saying the winds of heaven, he goes on and says, heaven and earth, must I remember... All this remembering how great his dad was, and he has to remember what happened to his dad after death. He says, why, she would hang on him as if increase of appetite had grown by what it fed on. In other words, she spent so much time with him that it was as if you got hungrier the more you ate. So the more she was with him, the more she wanted to be with him. And then he turns it. And yet, within a month, let me not think on it. Frailty, thy name is woman. She loved him so much, but within a month, and he stops himself. I don't even want to think about it, but he can't help himself. He says, frailty. In other words, sort of moral weakness. You're a woman. Women are morally weak. And as soon as he's off on that, he keeps going on that same topic. A little month, or ere those shoes were old, with which she followed my poor father's body like Niobe, all tears, why she, even she, oh God, a beast that wants discourse of reason would have mourned longer, married with my uncle. So there's a lot of parentheticals in there we should go through. A little month, little is a great way to describe it. Not even a month, although before it was not even two months. Or air, before those shoes were old with which she followed my poor father's body. So it's only been a month since the funeral. She followed his body to the grave like Niobe. In Greek mythology, Niobe is a mother whose children are killed. And so she weeps and she's turned to stone and her tears sort of become this eternal river. So Niobe is the image of a mourning mother or wife. So she behaved like Niobe at the funeral, but then, even she... And he says, a beast that wants discourse of reason. A beast that lacks the ability to reason. An animal, in other words, would have mourned longer than she did. She married my uncle. In other words, she married Claudius. And he continues from that. My father's brother, but no more like my father than I to Hercules. Yes, he's my father's brother, but he doesn't resemble my father any more than I resemble Hercules. He continues. Within a month ere yet the salt of most unrighteous tears had left the flushing in her galled eyes she married you see how that month is becoming a refrain here he's dwelling on how fast it was from the funeral to the wedding ere yet before even the salt of most unrighteous sort of sinful tears the salt hadn't even left the redness the flushing in her eyes galled means sort of swollen as eyes are after you cry so she married he says oh most wicked speed to Post with such dexterity to incestuous sheets. So her speed was actually wicked. Post means to hasten or rush with such dexterity. So so much agility to incestuous sheets. Remember we said that marrying your brother's widow was incest? Well, Hamlet calls it that. She ran so quickly to her brother-in-law's sheets. And finally he lands at the end of this long, headlong speech. It is not, nor it cannot come to good, It isn't good, and it can't end in anything good. But break my heart, for I must hold my tongue. And look at these two body parts being paralleled here. His heart has to break because he has to hold his tongue. He can't speak. So he has to send it all in. He's not allowed to say any of these things publicly. So we've just seen exactly the mindset that Hamlet is in here. His mother rushed into this marriage... He thinks it's disgusting and something is deeply wrong with the world. So it's a guy who is really unsettled about the way his world stands right now. And lucky for him, or maybe unlucky, his world is about to be turned over because who should enter but those three guys that we just saw heading out to find Hamlet, Horatio, Marcellus, and Bernardo. Horatio says, hail to your lordship. Hamlet says, I'm glad to see you well. So one way that people sometimes play this is that he doesn't even look up. He's used to people calling him your lordship and hailing him. So he just says, oh, I'm glad to see you well. But then he looks up and says, Horatio? Or I do forget myself. Like, I know you're Horatio. If I don't know you're Horatio, I should forget who I am. That indicates that they're really close. And Horatio is pretty flattered by that. He says, the same, my lord, and your poor servant ever. Poor is not literally poor, but it means something like humble. But Hamlet doesn't want to hear that. He says, sir, my good friend. Not poor servant, my good friend. He says, I'll change that name with you. He's going to change poor servant into good friend. But immediately the question comes up, what make you from Wittenberg, Horatio? What are you doing away from Wittenberg, in other words? And before Horatio can answer, Hamlet says, Marcellus. And Marcellus says, my good Lord. Hamlet says, I'm very glad to see you. So there's a little exchange there of pleasantries. They obviously know each other a little bit. Marcellus must be pretty important in the guard. Maybe he's been there since Hamlet was a kid. But he doesn't seem to know Bernardo. He just says, good evening, sir. And then he returns back to the question he was asking Horatio. But what, in faith, make you from Wittenberg? In faith means something like truly. Like, really, what are you doing away from Wittenberg? Horatio says, a truant disposition, good my lord. In other words, I have a sort of delinquent mood that I'm in. I'm in a kind of time-wasting frame of mind. A truant is someone who doesn't go to school. Hamlet isn't fooled. He says, I would not hear your enemy say so, nor shall you do my ear that violence to make it truster of your own report against yourself. I know you are no truant. Like, I wouldn't even hear your enemy say that you are a truant. And don't do my ear that violence. Don't abuse my hearing that way to make it truster of your own report, to to trust what you say against yourself. I know you are no truant. But back to the matter at hand. But what is your affair in Elsinore? What's your business here in Denmark, in Elsinore? We'll teach you to drink deep ere you depart. So either Hamlet's saying, you know, we should get some drinks before you go, or he's saying, you know, we're people who are known to be drunks. We just saw Claudius talking about how he's going to fire off the cannon every time he drinks. So Horatio is going to come here and learn how to drink from the Danes. So it's either celebrate with me or you know how we Danes are. And there's going to be a discussion of Danish drinking later on. It's very exciting. We'll get to it soon. So what is he doing in Elsinore? Horatio says, my lord, I came to see your father's funeral. And Hamlet strikes back as snarkily as he knows how. I prithee, do not mock me, fellow student. I think it was to see my mother's wedding. So this is useful because we know that it's another student at Wittenberg. He's a fellow student. He's a friend of Hamlet's. But he says, don't mock me. Don't make fun of me. You didn't come for my father's funeral. You came for my mother's wedding. Horatio says, indeed, my lord, it followed hard upon. Hard upon means something like very soon after. Yeah, it really came right after it. And Hamlet says, thrift, thrift, Horatio. Thrift is literally flattery of the rich in order to sort of gain a profit for yourself. So Horatio thinks he's being nice, but Hamlet says, you're just flattering me. It wasn't even hard upon. I'll tell you what it was. And he says, the funeral baked meats did coldly furnish forth the marriage tables. So they took the, I don't know, roast beef from the funeral that they served there and it coldly furnished forth. It supplied the tables for the marriage ceremony. It didn't even have time to spoil. They literally just cut it up and used it for the next meal. And coldly has a sort of double meaning here. It's, you know, not only was the meat cold when they cut it up for cold cuts, but it was sort of cruel. It was cruel that they reused the funeral food on the marriage. Would I had met my dearest foe in heaven or ere I had seen that day, Horatio. Would I means I wish I had. I would rather have met my my dearest foe, my worst enemy in heaven or ever before I had ever seen that day, Horatio. And thinking of that gets him really emotional. And he says, my father, he thinks I see my father he thinks isn't just i think it's something like it seems to me like it almost seems like i see my father and then in one of the sickest laugh lines in literature horatio says oh where my lord as though oh i just saw that guy where do you see him and hamlet doesn't know any of this so of course he says in my mind's eye horatio we've seen that image before horatio had that line in the last scene about a motive it is to trouble the mind's eye it's that same strange image of the mind having an eye the imagination essentially where you can see things that aren't really there And Horatio is relieved, obviously, because he didn't also see the ghost right now. So Horatio says, I I saw him once. He was a goodly king. Goodly can mean good in the sense of like he was a good king, an excellent king, or it can also mean good-looking, impressive. And Hamlet says, he was a man, take him for all in all. So Horatio called him a king, and Hamlet says, take him for all in all. If you consider him sort of completely from top to bottom, he was a man, which is a sort of compliment coming from Hamlet. I shall not look upon his like again. His like is like his equal. I'm never going to meet someone who's his equal again. And then Horatio drops the bomb. He says, My lord, I think I saw him yesternight. Yesternight, of course, is last night. And Hamlet can only respond in monosyllables. Saw? Who? Horatio says, My lord, the king, your father. The king, my father! So as you can imagine, Hamlet's sort of jumping out of his skin right now, and he's also pretty angry at him, presumably. Horatio says season your admiration for a while with an attentive ear till i may deliver upon the witness of these gentlemen this marvel to you so season your admiration means something like control your astonishment for a little while with an attentive ear with an attentive ear till i may deliver until i can present upon the witness of these gentlemen using these gentlemen as my witnesses i can present this marvel this wonder to you and hamlet responds for god's love let me hear so horatio goes into another one of his long expositional stories Two nights together had these gentlemen, Marcellus and Bernardo, on their watch in the dead waste and middle of the night been thus encountered. We've seen that word dead before when they use that phrase, jump at this dead hour, this sort of silent or death-like. Waste is something like the desolation, the middle of the night, been thus encountered. A figure like your father, armed at point exactly, capape, appears before them, and with solemn march goes slow and stately by them. So a figure like your father, resembling your father, armed at point exactly. At point means in readiness, as if for battle. Cap a pay is a sort of French or Latin version of cap, head, a to foot. So he's in total armor. Thrice he walked by their oppressed and fear-surprised eyes within his truncheon's length, whilst they, distilled almost to jelly with the act of fear, stand dumb and speak not to him. So thrice, three times he went by their oppressed and fear-surprised eyes, Oppressed in the sense of burdened or troubled and surprised by fear, their eyes. He he walks by their eyes, and obviously the rest of them are there too, within his truncheon's length. So as far away as a truncheon, in this case it's a spear, so no farther away than that, while they distilled, reduced, or dissolved almost to jelly with the act of fear. Act is a weird way to put it. It's not just the act of fear, it actually is fear. Stand dumb and speak not to him. They stand totally silent and they can't speak to him. This to me, in dreadful secrecy, in part they did. And I, with them, the third night, kept the watch. The word order is all over the place here. This to me, in dreadful secrecy, in part they did. They did impart this to me in dreadful secrecy. Maybe a better way to think of it. Um, Dreadful means full of fear, and in part means communicate. They, They told this to me. And so I kept the watch along with them. Where, as they had delivered, both in time, form of the thing, each word made true and good, the apparition comes." As they had delivered, just as they had described to me, both in time, form of the thing, each word made true and good. So it arrived at the time they said it would. The form of it was exactly what they had described. Notice that they use the word thing again. Each word made true and good. Each word was proved true and good. So made good means confirmed, essentially. The apparition comes. An apparition is something that appears. I knew your father. These hands are not more alike. And after all these long lines that Horatio is so fond of... He says, very simply, I knew your father. These hands are not more like each other than the ghost was like your father. So they resembled each other that much. And Hamlet has to know more. But where was this? Marcellus steps up and says, my lord, upon the platform where we watched, you know, where we stood watch over the castle. Did you not speak to it? Hamlet asks. And Horatio ends his line with, my lord, I did. But answer made it none. But it made no answer. Yet once methought it lifted up its head and did address itself to motion like as it would speak. So once it seemed to me as if it lifted up its head and did address, prepared itself to move, like as it would speak, as if it was about to speak. So it was about to speak, but even then the morning cock crew loud, and at the sound it shrunk in haste away and vanished from our sight. But even then, just at that moment, the morning rooster crowed aloud, and at that sound it shrunk in haste away. Shrunk is a wonderful verb for it. As though it shrinks actually in size, in haste, hurriedly away, and vanished from our sight. Hamlet's only reply is, "Tis very strange." And Horatio picks up on that, says, "As I do live, my honored lord, 'tis true. Yes, it's strange, but it is true." And we did think it writ down in our duty to let you know of it. Writ down means something like imperative, like it was almost written onto our duty that we had to let you know about this. Hamlet says, "Indeed, indeed, sirs. Yeah, of course you have to let me know about this. But this troubles me." Hold you the watch tonight. In other words, are you the ones keeping watch tonight? And Marcellus and Barnardo pipe up, We do, my lord. And then there are these quick back and forths between them to really speed up the scene. Armed, say you, says Hamlet. And then the soldiers say, armed, my lord. From top to toe, my lord. From head to foot. Top to toe is a nice way of saying head to toe, but you get that nice T sound. Then saw you not his face? And Horatio says, oh yes, my lord. He wore his beaver up beaver is the mask of the helmet i have no idea why they call it that it's weird hamlet says what look to you frowningly frowningly means like severe fiercely angrily horatio says a countenance more in sorrow than in anger a face an expression more of sadness than of anger hamlet says pale or red horatio says nay very pale and fixed his eyes upon you most constantly constantly is like unwaveringly he just stared at them Hamlet says, I would I had been there. Would means I wish I had been there. Horatio says, it would have much amazed you. And amazed isn't just surprised. In our sense, it's confused. It comes from that same word that maze comes from, as though you're lost in a maze. Hamlet says, very like, very like. Like here means likely, as it very likely would have amazed me too. But then he isn't done with questions either. Stayed it long? Horatio says, while one with moderate haste might tell a hundred. How long did he stay? He stayed as long as it would take someone who was counting with moderate haste, with moderate speed, to tell, to count to a hundred. And Marcellus and Bernardo disagree a little bit. Longer, longer, Horatio turns to them. Not when I saw it. So they're getting a little caught up in the details here. But Hamlet needs to confirm that it actually was his father. He says his beard was grizzled, no? Grizzled means sort of brown sprinkled with gray. Horatio confirms it. It was, as I have seen it in his life, a sable silvered. He says, it's just like I saw it when he was alive. A sable, a black color, silvered, touched with silver. And Hamlet has finally made his decision. I will watch tonight. I will stay with you and watch. Perchance it will walk again. Perchance is maybe or perhaps it's going to walk again and I'll see it. And Horatio promises him, I warrant it will. Warrant means to guarantee or to promise. And after a quick back and forth, Hamlet finally has some lines to speak on. If it assume my noble father's person, I'll speak to it, though hell itself should gape and bid me hold my peace. If it takes on my noble father's person, his physical appearance again, I'll speak to it, though hell itself, even if hell itself gapes, opens wide open, like the mouth of hell opens, and bid me hold my peace and tells me to be quiet. I pray you all, if you have hitherto concealed this sight, let it be tenable in your silence still. I pray you, I ask you all, I beg you all. If you have hitherto, if you have until now concealed this sight, if you've kept this a secret, let it be tenable, let it be kept secret, let it be held back. It literally means defended in your silence still and by still keeping silent. And whatsoever else shall happen tonight, give it an understanding, but no tongue. So no matter what else may happen tonight, give it an understanding. You can think about it all you want, but no tongue, but don't speak it. I will requite your loves. Requite means pay back. So I will pay you back for the love you show me by not telling anybody about this. So fare you well. This is sort of the goodbye of the time. May you fare well. Upon the platform, twixt 11 and 12, I'll visit you. Twixt means between. So between 11 and 12 o'clock at night, tonight, he's going to visit them. And the men all say, our duty to your honor. In other words, we promise to do our duty to you. Hamlet says, your duty, your love's as mine to you. He says, I don't want your duty. I want your love of the same kind that I offer to you farewell, goodbye. So everyone else leaves. And so Hamlet has a sort of mini soliloquy here. He says, my father's spirit in arms. So my father's spirit is walking around in armor, in full armor. All is not well. Yeah, no kidding, buddy. All is not well. So it's not just the fact that his father is walking around dead. It's that his father is dressed up in his armor. So something is deeply wrong here. I doubt some foul play. Doubt here means suspect, not in our current sense of doubt, some foul play, some false action. Again, it's that word play again, that there's some false action going on in the kingdom that would bring this up. Play literally means performance. And then he says, would the night were come. I wish the night were here already, in other words. Till then, sit still, my soul. He's literally talking to his soul and saying, stop jumping around all over the place. Sit still until tonight. And then he ends with this last couplet. And very often scenes will end with a rhyming couplet. He says, Foul deeds will rise, though all the earth overwhelm them, to men's eyes. It's as though there's a confirmation of his feeling before they even showed up that something was deeply wrong here with that marriage and his uncle becoming king. So foul deeds, bad deeds, actually will come to light. Even though all the earth overwhelm them, even though the whole earth tries to hide them, they'll rise to men's eyes. They'll rise to be seen. It's that same image of something being covered up and then brought to light. So even though everyone's made an attempt to cover up these bad things happening, I see because of this ghost, they're starting to come to light. And so that final rhyming couplet sweeps us off into the next scene. It's like a button on the end of the scene that ends it really forcefully. And in that next scene, we come back to some characters we just met in the previous scene. One of them is Laertes, who we remember was asking for permission to go back to France. The other one, well, it sort of depends on the production whether we've met her or not. We think, well, why do we care about these minor characters? This guy just said he's going off to France, but in some ways the most important character in this scene is actually his sister. So he says, my necessaries are embarked, farewell. Necessaries is a great way to turn an adjective into a noun. In other words, it's the things I need for travel. And embark doesn't mean they've gone without him. A bark is a a ship or a boat, so it means they're on board the ship to France, and he says farewell. And he goes on and tells us who this character he's talking to is. And sister, as the winds give benefit and convoy his assistant, do not sleep, but let me hear from you. So we know it's his sister. Again, some productions will put Ophelia on stage with Polonius and Laertes in the previous court scene. Some just introduce her here. Uh, she's going to turn out to be really important. He says, sister, as the winds give benefit, remember wind is what moves a boat forward. So the benefit they're giving is propulsion. And convoy is assistant. Convoy is sort of like carrying the means of transport. Assistant means helps out or assist. So the people who are carrying her message help out. Do not sleep. Don't even sleep, but let me hear from you, i.e. without letting me hear from you. And his line is a short line, and she ends it with this little phrase, do you doubt that As though he's foolish to doubt her love and that she'll write to him. And then Laertes immediately changes the subject. It's a great sort of older brother thing to do to his younger sister. He has some advice, so he's saving it right for the end. He says, For Hamlet and the trifling of his favor, hold it a fashion and a toy in blood, a violet in the youth of primey nature, forward, not permanent, sweet, not lasting, the perfume and suppliance of a minute, no more. So it's a long speech. But he says, as for Hamlet, And the trifling of his favor Trifling is sort of like frivolity or foolishness or ridiculousness Favor is his attention to you Presumably romantic attention Hold it, consider it a fashion Fashion almost like we'd use it today Like a passing fad or a thing that's going away pretty soon And a toy in blood Blood is uh, even a stronger version of romance It's much more like sex So toy is like a superficial attraction to her Based on sex alone His blood is hot so he's acting real nice to her And not just a fashion or a toy in blood, a violet in the youth of primey nature. A violet is a sort of beautiful flower that pops up and then almost immediately disappears. Primey is in its prime, basically at its most active. So it looks impressive now when it's in its natural prime, but soon it's going to go away. It's going to wither. Forward isn't just like he's being very forward with her. Forward is almost like premature or blossoming early. So it's forward, but it's not permanent. Sweet, sweet smelling, beautiful smelling, but not lasting the perfume and suppliance of a minute. Suppliance means, you know, what is supplied for a minute. So it's a sweet smell that only lasts for a minute and then goes on, no more. And Ophelia comes back, no more but so, nothing more but just that. And Lear sort of corrects himself, think it no more. In other words, consider it no more than just the suppliance of a minute. And if you go back, what you'll notice is they've put together a verse line out of three shorter lines. No more, no more but so, think it no more. So you have that nice echoing of no more going through one line. And then Laertes goes on to a much longer lecture of advice. For nature, crescent does not grow alone in thews and bulk, but as his temple waxes, the inward service of the mind and soul grows wide withal. Crescent here is like the crescent moon, which means that it's growing. Crescent literally the Latin word for to grow, like the moon is small and is getting bigger. Alone means only, so it's going to continue on to it. It doesn't grow only in thews and bulk. These are literally the sinews in your muscles, the tendons, which means strength, basically, and bulk is size. So a growing thing in nature doesn't only grow in strength and size, but as this temple waxes, temple, in other words, as the body waxes, grows bigger, the inward service of the mind and soul grows wide withal. So in other words, that internal part of the mind and soul grows wide, goes all over the place. In other words, almost like it's loose and growing everywhere withal, along with the body. So as Hamlet's growing up, yes, he's getting bigger and stronger, but he's also starting to wonder about other things everywhere. So his attention may be all over the place. And Laertes goes on. Perhaps he loves you now, and now no soil nor coddle doth besmirch the virtue of his will, but you must fear his greatness weighed, his will is not his own. So maybe, yeah, he loves you now, and now no soil, nothing dirty in other words, or coddle. A coddle is like a trick. Doth besmirch does discolor the virtue of his will. So now his will is totally virtuous to you, and there's nothing dirtying it up. But you must fear, yeah, you should be afraid. His greatness weighed, considering what an important position he has, his will is not his own. Yeah, his will seemed virtuous, but it doesn't actually belong to him because he's the prince. For he himself is subject to his birth. Yes, he's the prince, but he's actually a subject, which is a nice little turnaround on royalty. He's subject to his birth, to his high important birth, his position. He may not, as unvalued persons do, carve for himself, for on his choice depends the safety and health of his whole state, and therefore must his choice be circumscribed unto the voice and yielding of that body whereof he is the head. So he can't, as unvalued, as unimportant people do, carve for himself. Um, Carve here means choose, almost like you're the first person to cut into the turkey, and you get to choose which piece of it you want. On his choice, on his will, in other words, depends the safety and health of this whole state, so the entire country depends on him. And therefore, and because of that, his choice has to be circumscribed. And circumscribed means limited or restricted unto the voice and yielding of that body where he is the head. So it's restricted by, unto means by, the vote, in other words, and yielding of that body, the consent of that group of people whereof he is the head. So in other words, they get to choose everything he does. So in some ways, being a king is like being a subject because other people help decide that for you. Not only the people, but the lesser lords and all that stuff. Then if he says he loves you, it fits your wisdom so far to believe it as he in his particular act and place may give his saying deed, which is no further than the main voice of Denmark goes with all. So if he swears he loves you, it befits your wisdom, like it's appropriate for your wisdom, for your good sense, to believe it only as far as he can give his saying deed, as he can carry out in his deeds what he's sworn to you in his particular act and place, in his particular role and station in life. And how far is that? No further than the main voice of Denmark goes with all. No further than sort of the the general approval of the people of Denmark go along with that decision. And then he turns that back right to Ophelia. Then weigh what loss your honor may sustain. If with too credent ear you list his songs or lose your heart or your chaste treasure open to his unmastered importunity, then weigh, then consider, almost like you're weighing two options in both hands, consider what loss your honor may sustain. In other words, the loss her honor really chastity sexual honor may sustain may suffer if with too credent ear you list his songs if with an ear that believes too much a credulous ear you listen to his songs his love songs or lose your heart or your chaste treasure in other words the treasure of your chastity your virginity open to his unmastered importunity which is a great very flowery phrase unmastered literally means uncontrolled or uncontrollable And importunity is persistent asking, the way that a teenage boy likes to ask a teenage girl to have sex with him, by bugging her about it until she gives in. Fear it, Ophelia. Fear it, my dear sister, and keep you in the rear of your affection, out of the shot and danger of desire. So yeah, we know Ophelia is his sister. Keep you in the rear of your affection sounds a little gross right now, but actually it's a total military image so keep you stay in the rear of your affection so this is like being as far back from the front lines as possible her affection is like an army and she should stay as far back from the front lines as she possibly can out of the shot and danger of desire since desire is right up at those front lines she should stay as far away from that as she can because she could be shot at or in danger the cheriest maid is prodigal enough if she unmask her beauty to the moon The chariast maid, like even the most careful virgin in the world, is prodigal enough. Prodigal literally means giving away too easily. So willing to give away her virginity. If she only reveals her beauty to the moon. The moon was like the image of chastity and purity. Partly because it's white and partly because of some of the goddesses that were associated with it. So if she only reveals her beauty to the moon, she's still in danger of losing her virginity. That's how much of an assault virginity is under. And if you've been a teenage girl, you know what he's talking about. And he continues in that same vein, virtue itself escapes, not calumnious strokes. Even virtue, even virtue personified, not even a woman, but the nature of virtue escapes, doesn't even escape, calumnious strokes. Calumny is like slander or shaming. So even if you're totally virtuous, people are still going to accuse you of not being virtuous. By the way, almost this exact same phrase is going to come out in something that Hamlet accuses her of later in the so-called nunnery scene. He says, thou shalt not escape calumny, but we'll get to that later. So even if she didn't actually do anything unchaste, she could still be accused of that. Fair, right? And he keeps riffing on these same images. The canker galls the infants of the spring too oft before their buttons be disclosed. And in the morn and liquid dew of youth, contagious blastments are most imminent. So now he's going back to these flower images. A canker is like a caterpillar that gets into plants when they're very young into buds and eats them from the inside out. So the infants of the spring... Are literally those tiny little plants that are being born, the seedlings in the spring, too often, too often before their buttons be disclosed, before their buds open. But it's also kind of a gross sexual metaphor, if you ask me. And in the morn and liquid dew of youth, so he's comparing youth to sort of like the morning of life and to the dewy, liquid, excitable part of day. Contagious blastments, so catching rottings, blastments are like rottings or that being eaten from the inside out, are most imminent. In other words, happen most readily. And then he finally sums up all of his metaphors. Be wary then. Best safety lies in fear. So the safest thing is to be afraid of what might happen to you. Nice advice, brother. And he ends with a nice rhyming couplet. Youth to itself rebels, though none else near. In other words, youth rebels alone by itself, without anyone else being anywhere near it to make it do something stupid. Rebels here is almost like it acts against its best interests. So even if there was no one else to corrupt her... She might accidentally corrupt herself. And he's put a nice rhyming couplet on the end, almost like this is the end of the scene. And for him, it's the end of the speech. She's going to take his advice. It's going to be awesome. And Ophelia talks back. She says, I shall the effect of this good lesson keep as watchman to my heart. It's a very nice way to humor your brother when he's just giving you sort of weird, gross advice. So the effect here is almost like the moral of the story. I'll keep the moral of the lesson as watchman to my heart, almost like it's guarding her heart from Hamlet. And then she drops this on him. But... Good my brother, do not, as some ungracious pastors do, show me the steep and thorny way to heaven, whiles like a puffed and reckless libertine himself the primrose path of dalliance treads and wrecks not his own reed. Whoa, she's just turned his advice around on him. And good my brother is a nice little sort of ironic way to talk about how good he is to her. Ungracious here doesn't mean unthankful like it does to us. It means literally something more like irreligious. So... There are some you know, pastors, reverends, who are not as religious as they say they are. And you're showing me the steep and thorny way to heaven. So the way to heaven requires a lot of self-restraint. It's like a path that's very steep walking. It's very thorny along the way. And even as you're showing me that, Wiles, in other words, at the same time, like a puffed and reckless libertine, like a puffed up, like a proud, literally a swollen up. Reckless, we have a sense of that now, it means just sort of doing whatever you want, but what it originally means is not listening to anyone. And a libertine, we have that word still, we don't use it as much, but it means someone who lives an immoral life. It's literally someone who has too many freedoms or liberties. Himself, the primrose path of dalliance treads. So she's had to walk the thorny way to heaven, but he gets to walk along the primrose path of dalliance. So tread means walks along. Dalliance is like idleness or easiness or looseness. And look at the comparison in the two halves of this image. So she gets the thorns, he gets the roses. And rex not his own reed. Remember we just had that word reckless? Rex means doesn't listen to, and reed is advice. So she could say doesn't listen to his own advice, but it's much more poetic to say rex not his own reed. You get that double R sound and those single syllables. It's a nice punch to somebody who's about to go off to France, not necessarily a place at this time known for its moral uprightness, and is going to go enjoy his 20s. Like, who are you to give me advice? And all Laertes can do at the end of this is just squeak out a little, oh, fear me not. In other words, oh, don't worry about me. Yeah, I'll I'll be totally fine. I will definitely not do any of those things. And so this is the first piece of advice in a scene that is full of advice. They're kind of an advice-giving family. But they're not necessarily really good at keeping their own advice. And we're going to see where Laertes learned to give advice in just a second. Because here comes their father, Polonius, advisor to the king we met in the previous scene when he gave Laertes permission to go back to France. So we're getting a sense that this is probably happening at their house or sort of on the way out of their house as he's going off. And he says, I stay too long, because that's a nice way to sort of get out of the gaze of his sister who's just turned the tables on him. But it's too late because dad's coming. But here my father comes. A double blessing is a double grace. So what's the double blessing? Well, either he's already been blessed by Ophelia, and now he's going to be blessed by Polonius, or Polonius has already said goodbye and blessed him, but he's going to come do it again. So grace here is almost like an honor, or just like a general good thing. Occasion smiles upon a second leave. So he's obviously saying this to his dad. Occasion smiles upon a second leave. You could almost turn that around and say a second leave, a second farewell or goodbye is a happy occasion it's like there is a god of happy occasions and he's smiling on saying goodbye again and polonius says yet here laertes aboard aboard for shame are you still here laertes go go get on board your ship for shame like you should be ashamed that you're not gone yet He goes on, the wind sits in the shoulder of your sail. Think about where the shoulder is on the body. It's sort of the top forward part of your body. So the wind is in the the upper part of the sail, which is the best place for moving really fast at sea. The wind sits in the shoulder of your sail, and you are stayed for. You're awaited by the sailors, in other words. There, my blessing with thee. I've given you my blessing. And Laertes at this point probably starts to head out. He's gotten the blessing. But Dad is not the short-talking kind of guy. And he continues with another and. And these few precepts in thy memory look thou character few is a great ironic word here because he's there's not going to be a few of them there's going to be kind of a lot of them precepts are like rules or doctrines and character means to inscribe or write like you're digging a character into a hard surface so inscribe this permanently into your memory and he's going to give him a whole list of pieces of advice sayings really give thy thoughts no tongue nor any unproportioned thought his act so tongue here is almost like a voice like keep your thoughts inside your head without actually saying them nor any unproportioned thought. Unproportioned means like not fully developed, like a creature that isn't formed yet. So in this case, it's like a thought that isn't totally thought through. Uh, Don't act on it. And see the parallelism in that sentence? Don't give your thoughts a tongue and don't give an unproportioned thought his act. Be thou familiar, but by no means vulgar. So familiar is sort of like, you know, friendly with people, but by no means vulgar. So vulgar can mean sort of like everyone else or it can mean kind of friendly with everyone because he's going to go on to say... Those friends thou hast, and their adoption tried, grapple them unto thy soul with hoops of steel, but do not dull thy palm with entertainment of each new-hatched, unfledged comrade. So the friends you actually have right now already, and their adoption tried, they are in other words, taking on as friends, tried means tested, so they're really your best tested friends, grapple them unto thy soul with hoops of steel. Grapple is like fasten, or hook them into your soul with hoops of steel, the strongest material you can imagine. But at the same time, don't dull your palm. So the palm here is almost like the thing you use to shake hands. And dull means it almost can't tell the difference between a friend's handshake and a stranger's because you know so many people. Entertainment means sort of like welcoming or being friendly with each new hatched, unfledged comrade. It's a nice bird metaphor here. New hatched, literally just like hatched out of their eggs because they're that new as friends to you. And unfledged means something like untested. An unfledged bird doesn't have the feathers it needs to fly, so it hasn't actually tried to fly yet. So don't hang out with a bunch of new friends just for the sake of doing it. Beware of entrance to a quarrel, but being in, bear it that the opposed may beware of thee. And see how beware starts at the end of the previous line, so it kind of spills over? It's like Laertes keeps trying to leave, and Polonius keeps finding a new piece of advice to give him. So don't be so quick to get into a fight, but once you're in it, Barrett sort of arrange things so that the opposite, the other guy, the guy you're fighting, may beware of thee. So you get the beware at the beginning and at the end. So you should be afraid, but also he should be afraid. Give every man thine ear, but few thy voice. In other words, you can listen to anybody, anybody's suggestions you want, but don't give too much voice support to anyone. So it's a nice comparison between ear and voice as sort of body parts. Take each man's censure, but reserve thy judgment. So it's sort of similar to that previous line. Take everyone's censure, it can be criticism or opinion. So listen to what everybody has to say about you, but reserve thy judgment. Don't judge anyone else. Now, as we'll see throughout this play, we've seen a little bit already, Polonius is not great at following this advice. He has nothing but judgment. These are almost like things he's read in a book and thought, wow, I should really give that as advice, but he never quite thought about following it. Or maybe he thinks he is following it in his way. And then he goes on to some more fashionable questions. Costly thy habit as thy purse can buy, but not expressed in fancy. Rich not gaudy. So this first part is a little hard to understand, but may your habit, may your dress, your way of dressing, be as costly as you as you can afford. In other words, your purse is where you keep your money. So you should buy the best clothes you can afford, but not expressed in fancy. That doesn't mean you should wear fancy, showy clothes. In other words, rich, but not gaudy, not over the top. For the apparel oft proclaims the man, and they in France of the best rank and station are most select and generous, chief in that. The apparel, what you wear, oft proclaims the man, reveals your sort of true nature. So your outside reveals your inside. This, by the way, is almost entirely the opposite of what Hamlet just said in the previous scene. So you can see they may not get along in the rest of this play so well, but we'll get to that. So the highest ranked, most important people in France are most select and generous, are really sort of refined and noble, especially in that, in how they choose their clothes. So you have to kind of fit in in France. Neither a borrower nor a lender be, for Lone oft loses both itself and friend, and borrowing dulls the edge of husbandry. Yes, this is a very famous line, but just remember what it's saying. So you shouldn't loan money and you shouldn't borrow money. Why? Because A, loan often loses you the money itself and friend, also the person that you loaned it to. And borrowing, B, dulls the edge of husbandry. It's a it's an image from knife sharpening. Husbandry is like careful management of your household, especially sort of the finances of your household. So it's like you have a knife, and by borrowing, you've dulled the edge of it until you kind of don't know how to manage your own money because you've borrowed so much. This above all. Okay, we're getting to the last one. Thank God he can go now. To thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night the day. Thou canst not then be false to any man. So this is pretty self-evident, but look at some of the language here. So be true to yourself, and if you're true to yourself, you can't be false to anyone. So it's that, true and false opposites comparison in this line and must follow it has to follow as the night follows the day in other words and finally he says farewell my blessing season this in thee so what is he saying in season season is almost like mature or ripen like a fruit or a wine that sits for a while and becomes riper and riper season this season this advice in other words so may my blessing make this advice really hit home for you after a while And who knows, maybe Laertes has heard this all before, and maybe he just wants to get through it. Maybe he's legitimately broken up by having to leave. But finally he says, most humbly do I take my leave, my lord. He's almost like what he said to the king before. But it's a very formal way to talk to your dad, taking my leave, and most humbly, and my lord. But that's how you talk to your dad in this time, and it gives you some idea of what this family is like as well. The time invites you, go, your servants tend. So the time invites you, either the time is literally asking you to go because it's so right for you to leave, or you're late. Go, your servants tend your servants are essentially attending on you awaiting you and notice just for a second that he changes pronouns he's been talking to him the and thou which is a very informal way it's a way you talk to your son and then he goes right to you and your which almost indicates like this has become a more formal moment or they've become more equals but it's an interesting change suddenly of pronouns and then leartes turns to his sister and he says one last goodbye because they were interrupted the first time farewell ophelia and remember well what i have said to you and she replies right back, "'Tis in my memory locked, and you yourself shall keep the key of it.'" Which is a nice sort of poetical answer to him. It's locked up in my memory, and you, you Laertes, will have the key of it, so you can open it any time you want. It seems to imply that she'll keep it a secret that will last for about three seconds. And Laertes says, "'Farewell' and leaves.'" And the second he leaves the door, Polonius turns to Ophelia and says, "'What is to Ophelia he hath said to you?' So he immediately wants her to give up the goods. There can be no secrets from Polonius.'" He is a secret monger. And Ophelia says, So please you, something touching the Lord Hamlet. Not that kind of touching. Touching here means like concerning or something having to do with Hamlet. And that so please you is a really formal way to talk to your dad. Almost as though he's always demanding things from her. So please you, almost like may it please you, sir. So just in those two lines, we're starting to get a really clear sense of their relationship and it is tough. And once Polonius has found that it's about Hamlet, he goes right in for the kill. Marry well be thought. Mary, you'll see a lot in this play. It means by Mary, but it can essentially mean like, yeah, I agree. Or I swear. Yeah. Well be thought that's very well thought of by him to talk about Hamlet with you. And he goes on. Tis told me he hath very oft of late given private time to you. And you yourself have of your audience been most free and bounteous. Tis told me. Um, it is told to me by whom? Does he have spies watching her? Is he watching her? Has Laertes been telling him about her? Who is told? He has this vast network of spies around the castle, apparently. So very often lately, you have very often, lately, given private time to you. So Hamlet's given a lot of time to you where it's just the two of you together. And what have you given him in return? You've given him your audience very free and bounteously. Audience means, like, attention or being with him that way. You've been really free and bounteous. You've been generous. You've given it away without charging anything free. If it be so, as so tis put on me, and that in way of caution, I must tell you, you do not understand yourself so clearly as it behooves my daughter and your honor. So if that's true, and then he has this little parenthetical, as so is put on me, in other words, as it's told to me, in way of caution, sort of as a means of cautioning me against what's happening to you, I must tell you, I have to tell you, you don't understand yourself as clearly as it behooves, as it befits my daughter and your honor. So yourself here, that you don't understand yourself thing, could essentially mean like you don't understand your place as clearly as someone in your position, in other words, as the daughter of the advisors of the king, And your honor your reputation deserves and then after this sort of sly talking it comes down to this very blunt statement what is between you give me up the truth this is kind of a hard thing to hear from your dad but she sort of crumbles right to it she says he hath my lord of late made many tenders of his affection to me and she calls him my lord again which is a very formal way to talk to your dad of late lately made many tenders Uh, tenders are essentially offers of his affection to me and this is a very sort of sweet way to put a romance between teenagers or slightly older than teenagers And Polonius jumps right on that affection. So even the word disgusts him. He goes on, you speak like a green girl, unsifted in such perilous circumstance. So remember green from the previous scene? Almost like you were born yesterday, something so new. Unsifted means untested or inexperienced in such perilous circumstance in such dangerous matters. So you talk like someone who was born yesterday who has no experience in such dangerous business as being involved with important people. And you know what? She is. She is a green girl. She doesn't have a ton of experience in this. So I don't know why he's raking her over the coals so much about this. Do you believe his tenders, as you call them? So he even mocks her word choice here. He doesn't dislike her or hate her or anything. She's still his daughter, but he's very condescending to her. And Ophelia can only say, I do not know, my lord, what I should think. And look, she calls him my lord again. But I don't don't know what to think. And Polonius says, okay, fine. Mary, I will teach you. Cool. Uh, I'll teach you what to think. Think yourself, a baby, that you have taken these tenders for true pay, which are not sterling. In other words, think of yourself, again, that green girl image, as someone who's totally inexperienced, who has no experience in these matters. You've taken these tenders for true pay. You've taken, in other words, these offers of affection instead of real money, which are not sterling. Sterling is like valid money, legal tender. It's what the money was made out of, sterling silver. So instead of being paid for your affections, you took these tenders, these offers instead. And now he's going to start to play on words because he feels really clever when he does that. He says, Tender yourself more dearly, or not to crack the wind of the poor phrase running it thus, You'll tender me a fool. So tender yourself more dearly. It can mean a few things. One, it can mean sort of take better care of yourself, but it can also mean in the money sense we've seen before, value yourself more highly. Or he says, you'll tender me a fool, which basically means you'll make me a fool. You'll render me a fool. Might be the closest thing we have today. And in that last, and in that little parenthetical he has in there, not to crack the wind of the poor phrase running it thus, cracking the wind isn't the thing you think it is. It's more like tire out. Um, It's like if you run and run a horse until it's out of breath, you're cracking its wind, its breath. He may have included as many dad puns as it's possible to get into one sentence. And Ophelia's starting to get really upset about this. My lord, he hath importuned me with love in honorable fashion. So she wants to really clear it up now. He has importuned me. He has solicited me, basically. He's offered me his love in honorable fashion. There hasn't been anything dishonorable about it. And again he picks on her choice of words a very snippy thing to do i right. fashion you may call it go to go to fashion is is almost like laertes used it in the in his previous speech it's like a fleeting fad um, but what she means is like an honorable way he's like fashion no it's just like a thing that is here and then is gone and go to is like an expression of contempt you can sort of throw it away it's kind of the the modern equivalent is something like oh please but she continues her same sentence almost And hath given countenance to his speech, my lord, with almost all the holy vows of heaven. So yeah, he's sworn his love to me, but he's backed that up. He's backed up his speech. So countenance is like a support to his speech. With almost all the holy vows of heaven. So he's sworn to God with all the vows that heaven contains, that he loves me. And then Polonius really lowers the boom on her. I, springes to catch woodcocks. So springes are like little bird traps. And woodcocks are basically the dumbest game bird available, so they were always sort of wandering into traps. So he's insulting Hamlet and Ophelia at the same time. He's saying, yeah, he's laying traps for you with all of his holy vows, and you're a dumb bird to wander into them. He goes on, I do know, when the blood burns, how prodigal the soul lends the tongue vows. When the blood burns, like when the blood gets really hot with passion, or really, to be honest, sex. How prodigal, how freely and generously the soul lends the tongue vows. It's a gorgeous and weird image that the soul is just giving away vows for the tongue to speak as freely as you please. These blazes, daughter? Giving more light than heat, extinct in both, even in their promises it is a making, you must not take for fire. So these blazes, these blood burnings, it can mean something also like proclamations at the same time. So they give more light than heat. The closest expression we have is all sizzle and no steak, so there's no substance to them. And then that little parenthetical, extinct in both, even in their promise as it is in making. So both the light and the heat of these vows are extinguished, extinct, even as their promises are being born. So they burn themselves out as soon as they're made. You must not take for fire, so you shouldn't mistake these blazes for actual fire. They're not actual passion. They're just a guy who wants to have sex with you. And he's going to start telling her what to do now, very specifically. From this time, be something scanter of your maiden presence. From now on, be a little less generous of your time with him, in other words. And maiden here, virgin, is a very pointed word. Set your entreatments at a higher rate than a command to parley. Entreatments are conversations, but literally it's like negotiations in a war. So set a higher rate, a higher value on them than a command to parley. Command to parley is when one army has surrounded a town or another army, And that siege army has demanded that the other army enter into talks with them, a command to parley. In other words, a request to settle. But of course, it's an unfair fight because of course, one army has the other one surrounded. So she shouldn't just talk to him because he wants to talk to her. For Lord Hamlet, believe so much in him that he is young and with a larger tether may he walk than may be given you. As for Lord Hamlet, as for Prince Hamlet, believe so much in him, believe this much in him, this far. That he is young but he has a longer leash literally a tether is like a chain that an animal is tied up to walk on and he just has a longer one than she does because he's the prince and because he's a man and various other reasons men's virginity obviously was not equal to women's virginity which is guarded incredibly carefully at this time it's a an object of value it's one of the few things of value that women own at this time unfortunately so he can walk around much more freely than she can in few ophelia do not believe his vows, for they are brokers, not of that dye which their investments show, but mere implorators of unholy suits, breathing like sanctified and pious bauds, the better to beguile. So in few is like in a few words, or to sum up, don't believe these vows he's swearing to you. They are brokers, they're like sleazy sort of middlemen, salesmen, go-betweens. Not of that dye, not of that literal like color dye, which their investments show of their robes. So they don't, they're actually different on the inside than they are on the outside. There's that image of the inside versus outside again, which is going on all over this play. So what are the vows really? They're implorators of unholy suits. Remember the word mere doesn't mean just again; it means total or absolute. Implorators are requesters or askers, and unholy suits are requests that are not holy. So, they seem to be holy vows, but actually they're unholy requesters. Breathing like sanctified and pious bods. Breathing is another way of saying speaking. Like sanctified and pious bods. Sanctified and pious are almost negative terms here. It's like they seem really holy and pious. Bods are pimps. They're go-betweens. And why do they behave all holy? The better to beguile. The better to fool you. This is for all. I would not, in plain terms, from this time forth have you so slander any moment leisure... As to give words or talk with the Lord Hamlet. So this is for all sort of like once and for all. This is going to be the law. I would not. I do not want you to, to be honest, to be simple here. From this time forth, have you so slander any moment leisure? Have you so abuse any moment's free time as to give words? Give words could mean discuss, but really can mean something more like communicate by letter or talk with the Lord Hamlet. So you shouldn't see him or talk to him in any way. He's just banned her from talking with her boyfriend, basically. And we know, look, Hamlet has been back for a month or two, at least according to his claims of when his father died. And they probably knew each other pretty well before he went off to college a few years ago. But this seems like a fairly new thing. And he's been devastated by his father's death. And she has comforted him. And maybe the starts of love have begun because he really needed someone. He felt very alone in this kingdom. And Polonius has just banned that. He's shut it down. And it ends with some very short, devastating phrases. Look to it, I charge you. Come your ways. I shall obey my lord. Look to it means like pay attention to what I'm saying. I charge you. It's not I ask you, it's I command you. Come your ways means come along on your way or go along with me. And all she can say is I shall obey my lord, which is the sort of thing you say to a king, not your dad. And she's used that phrase my lord for him 9 or 10 or 11 or 12 times in this scene already. And obviously you would talk to your dad pretty formally, but this seems like a much more formal relationship. She says I shall obey, like you would obey a king. So after some pretty long poetical passages, it just comes down to these monosyllables. And there's very little understanding here. And you can see why Ophelia may not be in the best place in her life. And look, I believe he's honestly doing what he thinks is best for her. This is a guy who's very sure of himself. But at the same time, we can't help but leave this scene pretty unsure about what's going to happen next. Have you ever tried breaking up teenagers? It does not tend to go well. There's another play about that, but we'll get to that later. So that's the end of this podcast. On the next one, we'll finally see what's going on with that whole ghost business, and we'll meet Hamlet again. In the meantime, I'd really appreciate any support you can kick in for this project. Go to clearshakespeare.com slash support and give whatever you can. Thanks a lot.